0: listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Peter. That's 1 Peter. So, Pro tip where to find First Peter, you're gonna find Hebrews, real big book in your New Testament. And you're gonna go to the right two books. So we're going Hebrews, James, First Peter. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Okay, so Hebrews, James, First Peter, or you can use your table of contents that God gave you to help you find it, or you can use your Bible on your phone. And if you do that, then and you're cheating. It's super easy, right? So, uh, but that's cool. We're just glad that you're reading your Bible. If you do read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use that Version Bible app. That's just the one we recommend because all the stuff that's on the screen and more, including our community group notes, are all in the events section. If you go into the menu and click on events, you'll find our event in there. It's got our community group uh, study guide in there, and it's also got all the notes and everything. It's a great way to connect. But however you're turning there now let's go ahead and begin by reading some of our text this morning which comes from 1st Peter chapter 1 I'm going to read from verse 3 to 9 in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy Inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious message, this glorious truth. Lord, We pray that it would hit us like a ton of bricks this morning, that it would hit us right in the heart, that it would hit us in the head, that we would understand these things, that we'd feel them, that they would sink down deep into our hearts, they'd permeate our lives, so they would change our perspective, and that, Lord, what we study here on Sunday would change our Monday and our Tuesday and every day after that. Lord, we ask that you would do work in our hearts and that we would be receptive to your word, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible, by far, is the most printed book in all of history. In fact, maybe you know this already, but the printing press, the very first use of the printing press, was to print the Bible so it would be available to the common people. The second most printed book in history. Does anybody know what it is? I'll give you a hint. It's on the screen, right? It's called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, a book written by John Bunyan, in 1678. It's been translated into 200 languages. It has never been out of print since 1678. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegorical story about the Christian life. Uh, If you haven't read it, I would recommend that you check it out. You can actually get it for free. It's public domain. But it is an allegorical story about the Christian life. It's been said it's considered actually to be the very first Novel written in the English language. It's a, it's a part of our history, but it's also a very good and important book. The, the book basically portrays the Christian life as a journey, as a journey. And the journey begins with responding to the call of Jesus to follow him. And the journey has a destination. The ultimate destination of this journey is called the heavenly city in the book. And the main character, his name is Christian. And he's on this journey. And along the way, he faces many hardships, many distractions, many temptations, even ridicule along the way. But in the end, he makes it, I hope I'm not ruining the story for you, but he makes it to the heavenly city. And upon arriving there, he's asked to show his passport. He's asked to show proof of his citizenship. And so Christian pulls out a scroll, and he shows that he does indeed have citizenship in heaven. He enters into the heavenly city. And when he enters that city, even though he's never been to this place before, he finally feels like he has arrived home. He's arrived home. It's the home that he's always longed for, the home that he's always known existed, even though he's never been there before. All of his life he's been wanting to come home and he finally gets there, but he's never been there before. And that experience of being homesick for a home that you've never been to let me tell you what, that is common to all of humanity. That is common to every human being. See, all of us look around at the world we live in, and we, we see things that are broken. We see things that are wrong and, and things that hurt us. We see the pain and the suffering and all the things that are broken, and we say, maybe this is how it is, but this isn't how it should be. That's kind of a weird conclusion to come to, though, isn't it? Because this is all we've ever known, right? I mean if this is how the world is, then why do we expect it to be different? I, I've never met a young person who didn't aspire to change the world. Why? If this is how the world is, why do we feel innately deep down, all of us, that, the, that it should be different, that it shouldn't be the way that it is? Here's why, because we all uh, long for a better place. And Blaise Pascal, he was a Christian and a philosopher, and he explained it like this. He said, here's why, because there is something nostalgic inside of us he said it's nostalgic, it's reminiscent. He said it's almost like an ancestral memory that all of us have of the way that things are meant to be, the way that things ought to be, and we long to return to that place where everything is the way that God intends it to be. You see, life is a journey, but where is this journey going? You know, a few years ago, Miley Cyrus wrote a song called The Climb. Any Miley Cyrus fans? No, I knew none of you would raise your hand. I'm not. A, I'm not a huge like crickets, right? Miley Cyrus fans out there? Nope. Okay. Anyway, so Miley Cyrus wrote this song called "The Climb," and this song always bugs me, right? Like, have you ever heard this song? So it's called "The Climb," and in it, she describes life as a journey. And in this journey of life, as she describes it, there are a lot of mountains to climb. In fact, it's just one mountain after another. She says it's an uphill battle. There are hardships, there are difficulties. And here's what she says. There's always gonna be another mountain. There's always gonna be an uphill battle. But what matters is not the destination because there is no destination. All that matters is the climb. And people are like, yeah, great, great, great. But think about what she's saying. What she's saying is this, the essence of life is hardship. The essence of life is that it's a long, hard, unrelenting, uphill slog, and it is a horrible journey to nowhere. Thanks, Miley, right? It's a really catchy song. We all sing along, right? And we, we light up our phones and, and, you know, wave them back and forth. But it's a super depressing song. Like, none of us should be happy about this song. Because if you listen to what she's saying, here's what she's saying. Life is horrible, and it's going nowhere, And it's going to just keep getting horrible. It's not getting better. It's a terrible, painful, long, uphill, unrelenting journey to nowhere. Okay, in contrast to that, the Bible also describes life as a journey. But according to the Bible, the journey is leading somewhere. There is a destination. Your life isn't just a meaningless uphill battle. That's good news, right? right? There might be hardships along the way. But don't lose heart because God has a plan and a purpose with your life. And all of these present hardships are going to be worth it in the end. That's the promise that we have through Jesus in the gospel. So don't give up. Don't lose heart. Since there is a destination, since all of this is leading somewhere to something, since there is a purpose and there is a God who is at work in the world and in your life, the journey of your life doesn't have to be a drudgery. It doesn't have to be a drudgery. It doesn't have to be a hardship. It doesn't have to just be an uphill slog to nowhere for nothing. It can actually be a journey, even when you're going uphill, it can be a journey characterized by unspeakable joy. Unspeakable joy. And not only that, you are progressing because there is a destination. As you walk, you are progressing. You're making progress daily with God and with others toward your true home and towards carrying out his purposes for your life along the way. See, that is the great theme of 1 Peter, and that's why we've titled this series Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress. 1 Peter has been called a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. Let's talk about the first verse. It begins with these words. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's the author. So in the ancient world, when someone wrote a letter, uh, the person writing the letter, right, we tend to write our name at the end, right? Like, sincerely, Nick. Nick. And then, But in the old days, right? they would write their name at the beginning. Why? Because these letters were delivered on a scroll. Sometimes these scrolls would be several feet long. Now our letters come in envelopes. And what is the first thing you do when you get your mail? You sift through it and you decide what you're going to open and what you're going to throw out and what you're going to pay close attention to based on who sent it to you. We do the same thing with emails, same things with messages. It depends on who sent it to you, how much attention you give it. And so in the ancient world, they would write it right at the beginning. So that as you are like, oh, I wonder who sent this to me? Well, you just unroll that first part, and then you can see who the sender is. And they they would have done that same thing. So they see that it's from Peter. When they see that, their hearts must have leapt inside of them for joy. Oh, man, a letter from Peter, right? Gather round, listen up. This is going to be something we need to hear because this guy, Peter, he was O.G., 12 disciples, right? Like he's original, old school, one of the first disciples of Jesus. And not just that, he's part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the three disciples whom Jesus called especially to be close to him and especially to experience things with him that the others didn't experience. And Peter introduces himself, just in case anybody doesn't know who he is, as an apostle, The word apostle, it simply means somebody who is sent on a mission, somebody who's sent on a mission. Jesus' 12 closest disciples, they became known as the apostles because when Jesus left this earth, he charged them, he commissioned them with carrying out his work, leading his mission in the world. All of us who are Christians in a way, right, we are called to be disciples, right? We're called to be students, those who study Jesus' ways and follow him. But a Christian isn't only called to be a disciple. We're also called to be sent out by Jesus on his mission, commissioned by him to carry out his mission in the world. That's what it means to be a Christian for us as well. So Peter, A.W. Tozer said that Peter is a bundle of contradictions. That's how he described him. He's a bundle of contradictions. Think about it. Peter was the first one to confess Jesus. He was also the first one to deny him. We know that he had a mother-in-law, but we never meet a wife. That's weird, right? So uh, Peter, you know, Jesus singled out Peter, and he said, Peter, you are uniquely blessed. He said, because you, Simon Barjona, that was his Hebrew name, right? He's just a, a big bundle of contradictions he's got all these names okay Simon Barjona Jesus said you are blessed why because Peter was the one who recognized Jesus for who he was the Messiah the Lord God come to earth and so Jesus told him in that moment he said Simon Barjona blessed are you in other words you are a spiritual giant among mere men and then five minutes later Jesus called him the devil right and said get behind me Satan So Jesus, you know, here's Peter. He's a spiritual giant, but he's also the devil. He's a bundle of contradictions, just like many of us. See, they say that uh, familiarity breeds contempt, right? The more you get to know somebody, the more you will be disappointed with them when you see what they're really like. But for Peter, just the opposite happened when he walked with Jesus. The closer he got to Jesus, the more he loved him. Peter spent every day with Jesus for three years, and at the end of that, Peter worshiped him as God. And Peter would spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel of the kingdom until the day he died, until he breathed his final breath, which by the way wasn't that much longer after he wrote this letter that we have before us today. This letter was written in about 62 to 64 AD and we know from history that Peter was executed in Rome in 67 AD. Peter was put to death by crucifixion The same way that Jesus was killed, except before Peter died, he begged his tormentors to not crucify him in the way that Jesus was crucified. He felt that he was unworthy to die in the way that his Lord and Savior had died. So he asked that they turn his cross upside down. And so Peter was crucified in Rome, upside down with the blood rushing to his head. So for these people to receive a letter from this guy was a big deal. They would have read it. They would have gathered around. They would have read it over and over and over. They would have made copies of it. They would have spread it around. They wanted to consider every single word, which is what we're going to try and do as well. The audience, that's the author. Now let's talk about the audience. The audience of this letter were Christians, and specifically Christians who lived in five regions. They're listed there for us in verse one. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look at an uh, ancient map of what's now modern-day Turkey, you'll find out that these five regions are basically the five regions that make up modern-day Turkey. These are historical regions of Turkey, which at that time were part of the Roman Empire. Now That was the specific audience, but we know that this letter was actually intended for an even wider audience than that as well. This is what we call one of the general epistles, general epistles. So the general epistles include letters like James, first and second Peter, first, second, third, John. See the general epistles were written by the apostles, but they weren't written to a specific or particular congregation. Um, they were written to Christians in general. See, Peter. A lot of Paul's letters were written to individuals or individual churches, and they addressed issues that those people or those churches were facing uniquely. So, like he wrote, we just studied through First and Second Thessalonians. That's written to the Christians in Thessalonica. So we have Ephesians written to the church in Ephesus, Corinthians, Philippians, etc. These were written to specific churches or to specific people to address specific problems that they were facing. Now, we can learn a lot from those because a lot of things, right? There's nothing new under the sun. We face a lot of the same issues that they face. But the general epistles weren't written to any congregation In particular, they were written to Christians generally. And so in this letter, Paul has a message which all of us who follow Jesus need to hear. Ultimately, Peter is writing this letter by the inspirational Holy Spirit to be read by all Christians whom Peter calls, here in verse 1, elect exiles. Some of your translations will say instead scattered strangers or pilgrims or sojourners. Maybe sometimes you feel like a scattered stranger in this world. Maybe you feel like you're the only Christian at your workplace or in your school, right, where where you spend your time. Well, first of all, that's probably not the case. There are probably some others out there just waiting to be discovered. But if you sometimes feel like a scattered stranger, that's okay. That's kind of the point, actually, guys. Because think about this. Right now, What are we? We are here on Sunday morning. We are gathered together as a body. And in this place, we come here as a place to belong. We come here to gather together, to worship, to study, to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to be equipped. But you know what this is? This is the salt shaker. This is the salt shaker. Jesus told his disciples, and that includes us if you follow him, that we are the salt of the earth. He said, you're the light of the world and you're the salt of the earth. You know what salt does? It influences, doesn't it? When you put salt into a meal, it influences the flavor of that meal. It changes it. It influences it. It changes the flavor of whatever it's put into. And that's the idea with calling us the salt of the earth, that we would have an influence, that we would have... uh, An impact wherever we go for the gospel. But here's the thing about salt. It doesn't do any good if it just stays in the salt shaker. It doesn't influence the flavor of anything if it just stays in the jar. And so God's purpose for our life is that we would come here to be gathered together, right? That's something the Bible tells us. It says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some. So we're to come together. Why? Well, we come together to get extra salty, to rub up against the other salt, right? And then then we're scattered out into the world throughout the week. You're scattered into your schools. You're scattered into your workplaces, into your neighborhoods, into your extended families to be salt in the world, to do the work of God in the place that he has put you. So we come in on Sundays, or maybe you go to your community group or to your school of ministry class to learn, to grow, to be equipped and encouraged. But the goal isn't just to stay there. The goal isn't just to huddle together in the salt shaker. It's to be scattered into the world like salt so we can do God's work. So he can do his work through us. See, not only are we scattered into the world, but we're also strangers in the world. We're strangers in the world. We're scattered strangers. That word stranger doesn't just mean that we're a bunch of weirdos, right? What that word means is that we are exiles, right? That's why that term is used. We're exiles, people who are living far from home. Exiles living far from home, like a refugee, somebody who is somewhere that is not their homeland, but it's where they're living right now. We're strangers in the world. We're, we will always be, by nature of this fact, we will always be different. We won't fit in. We're here now, but we're like resident aliens. For 10 years of my life, I lived as a resident alien in a foreign country. I lived in Hungary, and uh, I was 10 years there. And during that time, now a citizen, but at the time I lived there, I was a resident alien. Hungary was where I lived, but it wasn't my homeland And even though I speak the language, even though I understand their customs, I was always a foreigner. I was never completely one of them. See, that's the idea here. To be a Christian in this world is to be a resident alien. Another word Peter uses to describe who we are as Christians, he uses the word sojourner, somebody who is passing through on a journey. They're here right now, but this isn't their final destination. Yet another word he uses is the word pilgrims. You know, one of the early Christian writings that we have is called the epistle or the letter to Diognetus. Diognetus. And in that letter, it gives us an idea. There's a description of what a pilgrim is. I found this fascinating. Check this out. He says, "...they inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents of it, they take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens." Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land is a foreign land. They pass their days upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. See, each of these words communicates something of what it means to be a Christian in the world. And the big idea is just this. You're a temporary resident in a foreign land, and you're going to a final destination. See, as Christians, we're homesick for a home that we haven't yet been to. We, we feel it in our bones. We've been told what it's like. We long to experience it. And the promise that we have is that through Jesus, one day we will finally get to go there. But until that day comes, we are here on earth. We're here on earth. But here's what Peter wants us to understand. See, if, if you would think that the only point of this letter is to say, hey, we're sojourners, so don't put down roots because we're going to get out of here. You know, don't unpack your suitcase. Just hold your breath so because one day you're going to go home. Then you're missing his point because his point is this. He wants you to understand. We are sojourners in this world, but we're not here to just bide our time. We're not here to just hold our breath until we can get out of here. No, we are not here to just grin and bear it and suffer through this life. And if you can just get through the next 50 years, then you get your own personal cloud. That's not the message. No, we are here We are to understand that we are here in this world on a mission, We have been left here for a purpose. We are scattered around this world for a purpose. And we must remember, we are ambassadors. We are here on assignment. And again, what is our mission? Again, we're called to be ambassadors of our true homeland. Telling people about our king. Inviting them to come with us on this journey. Living out the culture of our kingdom which is going to be different than the culture of the one where we live. So we live that out. We tell people about our king, and we invite them to join us on this journey, and we show them how they too can become citizens of this kingdom by trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Peter is called the apostle of hope, the apostle of hope, as opposed to Paul, who's known as the apostle of faith. So, Paul is called the Apostle of Faith. Peter's called the Apostle of Hope. And the message of this letter is a message of hope. The idea of heavenly hope permeates this letter. It's found here, even in the very first verse, where Peter talks about being pilgrims. He's alluding to our heavenly home, the fact that we aren't there yet. And he's encouraging us to live our lives now in light of the hope that we have in heaven, in light of our final destination, in light of our true belonging. The word exile is an interesting choice of words because it points us back to the Old Testament. You see, there was a time in the history of Israel where they spent a season of their history in Babylon, in exile. And what's interesting, you can read about this. Maybe here's some homework for you. Read Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah 29. And here's what he describes in Jeremiah 29. He describes how the people of God are to live As exiles in that place that is their temporary home. He told them there, he goes, here's the deal. You're not always going to be in Babylon. I've got you here for a time. And we know from history, God actually used that time in their history to accomplish some very good things in their nation. But here's the thing. So God had them in this place. It was uncomfortable. It wasn't home. They didn't fit in. They, they were exiles in this place. And yet God used that time for their good. But here's what he told them, how they were to live in that city that they were in exile. He said, I want you to love this city. I want you to love it with your actions. Do good in this city. Plant gardens, build houses, and bless the city where you are in exile. He said, in its peace, you will have peace. And yet, he told them, yet be distinct from them. Do not compromise your identity. Do not compromise your belief." So be in that place, but don't be of that place. The same is true for us as we live as exiles in this world. Now, Peter also wrote this letter to Christians who were experiencing hardship hardship historically we know that this was a very hard time for many Christians in the Roman Empire and probably that is the impetus that causes Peter to write this general epistle that he's in Rome he's seeing this great persecution start under Caesar Nero and he's writing a letter to those guys in the eastern part of the empire where the persecution hasn't yet got he's writing to prepare their hearts for what is going to come See, around the time that this letter was written, Paul the Apostle was put to death in the city of Rome. He was beheaded. His head was cut off with an ax. Nero, the Caesar, he blamed the fires in Rome. There were devastating fires that took place in Rome. And Nero took that opportunity to blame the Christians for setting these fires. And he used that as a justification for rounding them up and killing them. They would bring them into the Colosseum where they would be uh, killed by wild beasts in front of a watching, cheering crowd who would be using that as a form of entertainment. And Nero would take the bodies of these dead Christians, he'd tie them to stakes, pour oil over them, and light them on fire to light his garden parties. And Peter knew it's probably only a matter of time before this persecution spreads from Rome to the rest of the empire. And so he writes this letter to those in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, to believers, to to warn them, hey, hardship is coming. It's probably gonna get worse before it gets better, but I wanna prepare your hearts for whatever you might face in this life as a follower of Jesus. And in that way, this message applies to all of us. I'm sure this is true for, for you today as well. Either you are facing hardship right now And you need to have the right perspective on it. Or you are going to face hardship at some point in the future. So either way, you need to hear what this message of this letter is for us. Jesus told us this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble or you will have tribulation. There will be hardships. There will be trials. There will be frustrations. There will be difficulties. Don't be surprised by it. But here's the other thing he said. He said, but... Take heart, right? You will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome this world. Overcome, triumph, victory. That's what he pointed us to. He says, when you're going through trials, Jesus said, always see them in light of the triumph, my triumph, my victory. That's the lens through which you see your life and the trials you face. The key word for understanding 1 Peter is that word, triumph triumph. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, the key theme of this book is that the Christian life is a life of triumph. Who said that? The guy who's about to get crucified upside down? The guy who just saw his friend's head get cut off with an axe? Right? The guy who's seeing Christians being burned in Nero's gardens and he says the Christian life is a life of triumph? Are you sure? That that seems like a weird thing, but here's what he's saying. That's the power of the gospel. Despite my trials, despite your hardships, the Christian life is a life of triumph. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us. If your hope and your trust is in him, you are more than conquerors. You are more than victorious. No matter what this life might throw at you, in him you have a treasure that no one can take from you that you can walk through this world as one who is triumphant. You can look whatever life throws at you in the eye and not even flinch because of Jesus' triumph through which you have triumph. See, because of what Jesus did, you have something which is so precious, so secure. Nero can't touch it. Satan can't touch it. Death can't defeat it. It can't take you away from it. All the hardships and trials in this life must be put in perspective by viewing them through the lens of the gospel. What Jesus did for us, and what we have now, and what is to come as a result. And so, with the remainder of our time, I want to walk you through these verses and show you uh, the two big things that Peter tells us in this first part of his letter. Two big things that are the foundation as Peter begins his letter. Here's the first one Trials are temporary, but the victories are forever. The trials are temporary, but the victories are forever. And number two, despite the hardships, there is joy in the journey. Okay, let's talk about that first one. The trials are temporary, but the victories are forever. I see two distinct victories that he talks about here, Peter does at the beginning of this letter. Victory number one, the first five verses, he says this, you are written into the will. You are written into the will. Peter says in verse two that to be a Christian is to be an elect Exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's foreknowledge means exactly that. He knew beforehand, He had knowledge beforehand. This is particularly comforting for those of us who are going through hardships and trials because what it means is that whatever is happening to you, it isn't a surprise to God. He's not sitting there wringing his hands, you know, with his hands in his face, wondering what he's going to do, not expecting that that was going to happen. It didn't catch him off guard. No, he knew that the thing you're facing, he knew that it would happen, and he has allowed it for a purpose. Furthermore, what this means is that you and I, who are Christians, it means that God chose you. That's really good news, guys, that God chose you. He picked you. It means that he wanted you. And he placed his love upon you. See, the idea of foreknowledge doesn't just mean that God knew what would happen in your life or what choices you would make. It also means that he foreknew you personally. He knew you before you knew him. And he chose to love you. Here's what it says. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. To be sanctified means to be set apart and God's plan for your life is that you would be set apart, different, for a purpose. And that purpose is to follow and obey Jesus. And he says this, that you would be sprinkled with his blood. Do you know what sprinkling with blood has to do with? It has to do with cleansing. In the Old Testament, they would use sacrifices. They would cleanse. But it wasn't just cleansing. It was also the way that you entered into a covenant. It was a sign of a covenant. What's a covenant? It's a special relationship based on promises. Special relationship based on promises. Unlike a consumer relationship where you choose the person because of what they can do for you, in a covenant relationship, you choose the person for who they are, not for what they can do for you. And that's what it's saying. God has set you apart for a purpose, for a special relationship with him. You know what Peter's describing here in these verses? In these first five verses, what he's describing is an adoption. That's what it is right here, an adoption Some years ago, my wife and I, we had the privilege of adopting a child into our family. And in adoption, you choose to bring an outsider in. You choose to bring an outsider into your family and place your love on them and make them your own and treat them as your child in every way. And when we adopted our son, it's so interesting. One of the things they did is they issued him new documents, a new birth certificate, retroacted right which has a new name on it and it lists us as his parents it was almost if you might say in that moment when he was adopted you might even go so far as to say that he was born again it was like he got new documents It's almost like he was born again as a new person And that's exactly what Peter shows us in this talk about adoption. Look at what he says in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So to be a Christian means that you have become a child of God through adoption. This hope that we have in Jesus is a living hope because he is a living Savior. He has risen from the dead. He not only died for your sins, but he triumphed over death. And through him, if we're connected to him, if we're linked to him, we are written into his will and we get to enjoy the spoils of his victory. I like how N.T. Wright put it. Here's how he explained it. He said, Becoming a Christian means that what God did for Jesus on Easter, he does for you in the very depth of your being. When we had our courtroom hearing to finalize the adoption, you know, the judge made sure that we understood that if we adopt this child... Here's the deal. We have to understand. He made sure we understood. He repeated it. He said, if you adopt this child, they will become a full-fledged heir. If you die, all of your stuff goes to him. And that's what Peter's describing here in verse 4. He's saying, we have been adopted by God. And as a result, we have been brought into the family. He's become our father. And we have been written into the will. Except this will is different. This will is not triggered by a death. It's triggered by a resurrection. We have an inheritance waiting for us. And this inheritance, Peter says, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That means that it is secure. It's secure. Nothing that happens here on earth can take it away from you. The trials you experience in this life are temporary. But what Jesus has done for you is he has won for you through his life, death, and resurrection an inheritance that lasts forever. But check this out. It isn't just that the inheritance is kept for us. It's that we are also kept for our inheritance. God doesn't just guard the inheritance for us. He guards us for the inheritance. Look at verse five. By God's power, you are being guarded by faith. So first he says, the inheritance is secure. It's being guarded. But he says, you know what else? God is guarding you to see you through to make sure you get there to the destination so you get that inheritance. In other words, you're not just on your own in this, right? It isn't just like, hey, uh, I hope you don't mess this up because that would be a bummer. No, God's saying, I'm gonna see you through. I'm gonna hold your hand. And when your grip gets weak, I'm still holding on to you. See, in a normal will, when somebody writes you into their will for the rest of their life, you kind of have to tiptoe around them, don't you? Because you don't wanna get on their bad side. You don't wanna upset them because they wrote you into the will and they can write you out of the will, right? Like they can remove you from that will. But here's the good news of the gospel is that God has already seen you on your worst day. He's looked into your heart and he's seen the darkest places. And in spite of that, he has chosen to love you and give you his grace. And if he's done that on your worst day, if he's brought you into his family, placed his love on you, adopted you as his child, he's given you an eternal inheritance. He's not only guarding the inheritance for you, he's guarding you for the inheritance. He's going to make sure that it happens. He's the author and the finisher of of our faith. Victory number two is this. God is redeeming your hardships. He's redeeming your hardships. Peter says this in verse six. In this you rejoice even if for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold though it perishes though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay we know that God isn't the author of evil. But instead, God is a redeemer. To be a redeemer, right, to redeem something means that you take something that is condemned and you give it a new story. You give it a new purpose, a new, a new use. You use it for good. You take something that is bad and use it for good. You give it a new purpose. And we see this throughout the Bible. This is what God does. He takes bad things and repurposes them and uses them for good. And what Peter's telling us here is this. Your trials are temporary, But the victories last forever. And God, here's the amazing thing. God will use your temporary hardships to bring about good things that last forever. Do you know that? The things that he works in you through these hardships, the hardships won't last. But the things that he works in you through the hardships will last forever. You get to take them with you. That's incredible. He says that one of the good effects is that it refines you. These hardships refine you. And he compares it to gold that is cleansed in a fire. You know, gold is one of the most durable metals that exists. It's also a very soft metal, relatively. But it's able to withstand great amounts of heat. And what happens when gold is subjected to heat and fire is that the heat actually has the effect, once it becomes liquid, right, of of purifying the gold. In other words, the, the dirt, the dross, the scum that's inside, it rises to the surface so it can be removed. And the end result of that fire, of that heat, of that trial, of that test, is that it brings to the surface all the junk so that it can be cleaned away and you end up with stronger gold, See, those impurities, the dross, the dirt, the grime that's inside the metal that's mixed in there, it weakens it. It takes away from its integrity. It it makes it more likely to crack or to break. But Peter uses this picture of our faith. He says it's precious like gold but in all of us, there are impurities, right? There are, there are wrong ways of thinking, wrong ways of being. There are impurities, even in our faith. And so when we're put to the test, what it causes to do, it causes the junk to rise to the surface so it can be dealt with, so it can be uh, taken care of. And that's what God does with us through these hardships. So we do See that we have victory, even in these things, God gives us a victory. The result will be a purer and a stronger faith, which will be less likely to crack and break in the future. Again, the trials are temporary, but what they produce in us, we get to take those things with us forever, even into eternity. And the end result, Peter tells us, is that through this redemptive work of God in our lives, God will be praised and honored all the more. And here's the second one here. We'll finish here. Despite the hardships, there's joy in the journey. Despite the hardships, there's joy in the journey. If you would have just stopped at verse seven, you might think, well, I think the message of 1 Peter is this. Look, life is a bummer. But if you trust in Jesus, then one day you'll go to heaven. It's like, okay, it's cool, you know? So if you're, uh, if you're older, I guess that's a great you know, encouragement. But if you're younger, it's like, well, I've just got to stick it out for 60 more years, and then I'll be fine. And that leads to what? It leads to lives of desperation. And the question is, is that all that the gospel is? Is that all that we have as Christians? Is that all the hope that we have is? That one day I'll finally get to leave this rotten place and go to heaven? No, that's not it. Peter wants us to know, despite the hardships, there's joy in the journey. There's joy in the journey. He says in verse eight, because of what Jesus did for you, even now, no matter what's going on in your life, you can have a relationship with God, which will give you, look at what he says, inexpressible joy. He's not talking about then in heaven. He's talking about right now, inexpressible joy. See, being a Christian isn't just about not going to hell when you die. Of course, that's a big part of it. But it is also about the joy of walking with God here and now and then forever. Peter tells us in verse 10 something else that's incredible. Check this out. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ inside of them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things which even angels long to look into. Here's what he's saying. What you get to experience as a Christian, other people for thousands of years, they wish they could experience that. They wish they could have what you have now with a relationship with God, right? This intimate relationship with God where God indwells you. He puts his spirit inside of you and indwells you. People longed for that, right? Before Jesus came, generation after generation, they would look into these things that were prophesied about. Like when Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah says, here's what's going to happen. One day there's going to be a new covenant. God's going to make a new covenant with his people. He's going to give you a new heart. He's going to put his spirit inside of you. And people are like, whoa, what is that? What is that going to be like? I want that. Man, what would it be like to experience that. Guys, we get to do that. We get that joy even now. We are privileged people living in privileged times, and when we face hardship and difficulties, we need to keep the right perspective. See, because of what Jesus did for you, you can have access to joy at any time. You have access to joy at any time because of Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for you. Heaven will be triumphant but in Jesus, there is a wellspring of joy that you have access to here and now as well. See, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what it leads to is, it leads to a brand new way of living. No matter what your circumstances, it leads to a brand new way of approaching life. The hardships, the trials, the joys, all of it. Jesus died not just to give you life after death, he gave he died to give you an abundant life here and now as well. And I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this hope that we have in the gospel and what the gospel does in our lives. Check this out. Here's what he says. This hope does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace and on the battlefield. It keeps us going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Here's what he says. Hope is not a sedative. Hope is a shot of Adrenaline. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of this life, but unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward. It does not hold us back. Guys, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, last thought, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, it says this, that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. What is that saying? It's saying this, that the motivation, Jesus' motivation he was motivated by two things, joy and hope, joy and hope. The joy that was set before him was the hope of redeeming you, of making you family, bringing you into a relationship with him that would last for eternity. His hope and his joy was what motivated him to fulfill the calling that the father put on his life. Do you see where I'm going with this? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? The same may be true for us. May it be true of us that we would look to Jesus and we would revel in the hope that we have in him and that we would walk in the joy which comes from walking hand in hand with our God and getting to be used by him in the world. And may we remember that God has us here for a purpose, to carry out his work so that others can know that same hope and joy and it can just spiral up. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this great joy that we have in you. We thank you for this great hope that we have in you. And Lord Jesus, just as you, we see we're motivated by hope and by joy to fulfill God's, the Father's calling on your life. We ask that you would do that in our lives. Lord, that we would tap into this wellspring of joy that we have in you. Lord, thank you that we get to experience that which generations before only hoped and thought about and imagined and were curious about. Lord, may we not uh, take that for granted ever. May we enjoy it. Lord, may we walk in it. May we experience the joy, and may this hope move us into the world to be salt and light for you, for your glory, and for the good of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.